If you bathe in the spectrum of the sun, S-O-N, you will reflect that light. Hmm. I, I don't know how that struck you when you heard that, but that sounds a whole lot to me like a fascinating passage of Scripture that's tucked into the book of Colossians that teaches every single thing on this earth was created for the sole purpose to reflect the character of God. And I don't know if you've ever kind of considered creation in that kind of mentality that when God put it all together, what he was trying to do was show us what he's like. And so if you've ever stood on the beach looking out over the ocean, you may have been struck with the bigness of God. I mean, bigger than your eyes can see. If you've ever held a newborn baby in your arms, your breath may have been taken away by the beauty of God. You've never seen anything as beautiful as this child. If you've ever sat on your deck and you watched a storm brew up, you were impressed with the power of God. God's intention when he created the world was that you and I could look at the world and see him. Now, what I, what I want you to encourage you to do during the next several minutes is I want you to think of womanhood like that. When, when God created Eve, his intention was that she and her future sisterhood would reflect his character to the rest of creation. Because everything that God ever created had its purpose to reveal himself, including women. When God created Eve, he had that thought. And so when we think of that on a weekend in which we celebrate mothers, it begins to make all the sense in the world. It was the early years of 1900s when there was a lady in Philadelphia by the name of Anna Jarvis who recognized that about motherhood. Her own mom had died and Anna thought that she ought to be able to somehow get together with friends and family and recognize that her mother revealed the character of God to her. And so Anna gathered a few friends. They got together at her, friend, her friend's church, a, a Methodist church, and they gathered together. The year was 1908, and there was just a bunch of people that honored this lady who revealed God. That struck Anna so much in that one service that she began to lobby that we ought to do this more often. She had affluence and influence. And so she began to talk to everybody about it and began to lobby influential, important people until 1914, it made its way all the way to the White House. And President Wilson in that day, President Woodrow Wilson agreed. And in 1914, he decreed that from now on, every second Sunday of May will be a national holiday in our country. This year, year 110. 
But Miss Jarvis became quickly disgruntled about it because she noticed that it became commercialized. You might know this about Mother's Day, but it might be the first time you hear it. I found it somewhat humorous myself that she lobbied for the day, and once she got it, she found out that card companies and florists and department stores began to commercialize it and make money out of it, and it disgusted Anna Jarvis. And she then spent the rest of her life until her death in 1948 trying to get Congress to kill Mother's Day. Now, unfortunately, she was not successful, and we are still celebrating Mother's Day. But if you want to honor the lady who started this, then you tell your mother this weekend, sorry, Mom, Anna said you ain't getting nothing, okay? Now, there's a couple of emotions that exist during this weekend. Let's just throw the emotions out so we can deal with them and we can jump into those. One of those emotions is celebration. And there are many in this room that you're among the lucky ones. You had a mom who reflected the beautiful character of God. And so you celebrate this weekend. But on the other end of that is the presence of frustration. Maybe your mom was not like that. Maybe you're missing your mom. Maybe your mom is not here this year for the first year. Maybe you've not been able to become a mom, and you'd give everything that you could to be able to do that. So whether you're in the celebration camp or the frustration camp, I'm going to ask you to do something today. I'm going to ask you to take the concept of motherhood, and I'm going to ask you to see it as just a small part of the greater concept of womanhood. And when you consider the concept of womanhood, you begin to see the thesis that I want you to kind of wrestle with today, and that is everything that God created had the ultimate purpose to reveal his beautiful character, including women. So let me say this. Check this out. When God created women, his intention was that we would know him more fully by observing his creation of womanhood. Now, let me get a little bit in our grills, a tad bit right now, and I want you to know that I've thought long and hard about this. I've prayed about this with intensity about what I'm about to say to you. Manhood is the same thing. Manhood has no difference than womanhood. When God created manhood, his purpose was that creation would learn about his character by observing what he created in men. And guys, you know as well as I do, a number of years ago, the humanistic, anti-God culture in which we live started to attack the subject of manhood. And the more that we let that happen, the more in this country that men cannot be men the way God made them to be, the result of that is that we will see less of the character of God. Now ladies, hear me, please. The humanistic, anti-God culture 
Are you hearing me, ladies? They are now attacking you. Some segments of our population doesn't even know what a woman is anymore. And the more that we let that happen, the more this country becomes a nation that allows that to occur where women cannot be women the way God created them to be. The result of that is we see less of the character of God that he intended to show us through the creation of women. Somehow, we've got to get our hands on that because the intention of God is to see womanhood and see part of him. Let me give you an example of that. The world of baseball for young people is different than when I played back in the Ice Ages. When I played Little League Baseball, my little park, it was called Producers Park in Danville, Illinois. They had four leagues. They had C League, B League, A League, and Pony League. And Pony League were the oldest ones, and C League is when you first started. I played all four leagues when I was growing up. I remember one game in all of that time. I wasn't very good, so there wasn't anything I remember. I remember the day I hit a home run and won. I don't have those memories. I remember one game in B League. It's the only game I ever remember. And the reason I remember B League game is because I was terrified before the game because they told us that the opposing team, somehow they worked this out, that they were bringing an A League pitcher down that weekend to play B League and he was pitching against us. And he threw darts. They were screaming darts. And I was terrified. And what I was terrified the most happened. While at bat, he hits me with a fastball right here, right in the side of the face. And I fall down like a little schoolgirl, and I am screaming and wailing. You know whenever you've been hit, and you literally see the stars, and your stomach feels like you're going to vomit? Okay, I'm feeling that. I'm laying on home plate, and I am crying. I'm dying. This is it. Jesus and I are going to be playing poker here in a couple minutes. And man, it's just all over with. And I hear all this commotion. There is screaming and there's yelling going on. And I'm thinking, what is in the world going on? And I open my eyes, laying in the dirt on home base, and there ain't nobody helping me. Ain't nobody around me at all. This poor little kid is dying, and there's no soul there. And I happen to look out on the pitcher's mirror. And my mama <laughs> has come out of the stands and is trying to give a whooping to that pitcher, Okay. <laughs> And umpires and coaches and everybody are out there trying to craze, stop this crazy lady. You know what was happening? She was reflecting. Listen, I'm serious about this. She was reflecting the protective nature of God. That's exactly what was happening. And so somehow... On a weekend in which you and I are celebrating this concept of womanhood, we have to understand that its intention by God was that we could see him in her. Now, I, I don't want to be the glass half-empty guy. I don't want to be that guy. I, I detest that guy. 
I'm not a negative guy. I'm a positive guy. I'm a hopeful guy. And I don't want to be that guy. But I want you to know that I'm not confident at all that we can turn the tide on our humanistic culture and what they've done to manhood and womanhood. The cat is out of the bag, and I just don't know how we're ever gonna wrestle it back in. But we don't have to let that happen in the church. We don't have to put up with that. And so we can stand on truth. We can stand on truth. And women can be women, and men can be men. And the result is that we will know him better. And so with that in mind, let me introduce you to the last chapter of the book of Proverbs. I don't know if you're aware of this, but most of the books in the Bible, we know who wrote them. For example, I mentioned Colossians early, and we know in the very first verse in Colossians, the author says, I am the Apostle Paul. So we know, and so many of the books, we know exactly who wrote them. There are other books that we don't know who wrote. We can guess, we can assume, we can figure out a few things and think, well, it's kind of likely him or him, but the reality is there's some books in here we just don't know. The book of Proverbs is a mixture of those. The book of Proverbs, 31 chapters long, is all these sayings of great wisdom, and we know who said some of them because it tells us Solomon wrote a lot of the Proverbs in your Bible. There was a guy by the name of Agur, A-G-U-R, who wrote some of the, the, the Proverbs in the Bible. But there are other Proverbs in that book that we don't know who wrote them. And the last chapter is one of those, chapter 31. We don't know who wrote this incredible chapter. We don't know. Now, it tells us who wrote it, but I'm going to show you that we're not real sure about it. Let me show you chapter 31, verse 1. Let's look at this. The sayings of King Lemuel, an oracle his mother taught him. Now, you read that first verse there, and you say, well, dude, you must not have read what you just said, because it says right there, King Lemuel, he wrote it. Well, here's the deal. We don't know who this cat is. We have no idea who he is, and there is no history, no literature anywhere that ever says anything about a King Lemuel. We, we don't know who he is, and so because of that, some people think it's probably a pseudoname. And some people say, well, it's Solomon. Solomon just came up with a pseudo name here, but we don't know that it was Solomon. I don't think there's any way it's Solomon because in most of the Proverbs, Solomon says, hey, I'm Solomon, here's my sayings. How come he would do that for the whole book and then in chapter 31 throw out a fake name? Why would he do that? I don't, I don't think it's Sam or Solomon at all. And there are other places where people say, I think it's this person or that person. Some people say it's not even a real person. Okay, they just made up a name, and we, don't, we, we just don't know any of that. And so I, I think the issue, when you get to chapter 31, you're going to find out in a minute why this is such an important chapter. The issue is not who wrote it. It's not who wrote it at all. The issue of chapter 31 is where it came from. And I want you to put that back up there again. I want you to look at it one more time. Look at verse 1. Notice that it came from his mama. Whoever this was, what he is about to write was given to him 
by his mother. And his mother apparently shared something with him, and it was so important that he began to write it down. So the issue is not who wrote it. The issue is that it came from a woman who was a mother. Now notice also what it's called, an oracle. So some mother sat down with her son and gave him an oracle. Now I'll bet you every dime in your pocket you have not used that word today, have you? You haven't seen anybody say, I got an oracle for you. You'd say, what in the world are you talking about? That's not a word we use. So I kind of checked out that word. And what that word is in the Hebrew language, it's really kind of cool. It is the same word that they used for the backpack that they put on the back of a mule. So when they're going somewhere, they throw everything on top of the mule. And that backpack, whatever that is, is the word oracle. And so what it means is something that is weighty. It means something that is a burden. It's something that weighs you down. And it can be used for the backpack on a mule. It can also be used when somebody says something that is incredibly important. And that's when it says oracle. Now, I also found it interesting that there are other places in the Bible that that talk about what it could be. And uh, we're, not, we're not talking here about a, a, a talk around a kitchen table. This isn't a mom and her son before school. Have a good day, Johnny. Bless you. That's not what this is. I, I wrote something on my sheet of paper when I wrote my notes out, and I thought I'd show you what I wrote to give you an idea what an oracle is. Check this out. This is an intense eyeball-to-eyeball, heart-to-heart, Mom talking and son listening monologue. That's what that is. And there are other versions in the Bible that tried to take that word and tried to give it a name so that we would understand whatever she was saying. I mean, we're talking top of the list stuff right here. Look how some versions of the Bible translated it. Uh, One version I found said, that she gave him a pronouncement, okay? Another one said, an inspired utterance. Has anybody ever got an inspired utterance from your mom, huh? And I love the last one because it gives the punch to it, a prophetic revelation. So here's here's what's happening in chapter 31, verse one, and it's just crazy super important that whoever this dude is, He had a time where his mother sat down with him and said, man, I got some big time stuff that I gotta tell you. And that's Proverbs chapter 31. And you may never have known that was in the Bible, this intimate conversation between these two people. And so if you took chapter 31 in the book of Proverbs and you just started reading through it, You'll find out that she looked her son in the eye and she told him four things. I'm gonna show you each one of those real quick and then I'm gonna play with the last one a little bit. I just want you to hear this. The first thing she talked to him about was this. Sexual immorality. She spent the first two verses and talked to him about sexual immorality. Now I thought about that. (laughs) 
My mom never talked to me about that. If she did, I would have went, ah, and took off running, okay? I do not want to hear that from my mom. And uh, this lady looked at her son. The first thing she talked about was this, and here's what she said about it. That will ruin you. That will ruin you. And so once she made that very clear, she then spent the next four verses, and don't shoot, don't shoot the messenger here. She spent the next four verses, and she talked about alcohol. Now, I know that's kind of a, a debatable topic, and I know it's kind of a sensitive issue. But for some reason, this lady looked at her son, and she knew she had him just for a few minutes and wanted to say some things that were really, really super important. And the second thing she came up with was what you choose to do with alcohol. And I'm going to tell you what she said about it. She said, if you abstain, life has the potential to really increase with success. And if you participate, it has the great potential for your life to decline. I could spend the next hour and talk to you about that, but I won't. When she was done with that, she then went to her third topic, and she spent two verses talking about the whole idea of caring for those who are less fortunate. I find that fascinating to me. There's always going to be people in the world lower on the socioeconomic, physical spectrum than you are, and you can ignore them, and you can despise them, or you can defend them and help them. And she said, you ought to defend them and help them, and she made that statement. Now get ready, get ready, because here it happens. This was all just set up stuff. Because the next 22 verses, the end of the chapter, she talked about womanhood. Two verses about immorality, four verses about alcohol, two verses about taking care of people less fortunate, and 22 verses, in other words, almost the whole chapter, I want to tell you what a woman is. And some people have taken that and think what she was doing was she was telling her son, this is the kind of woman you need to look for as wife. And that might be true. That might be true. There are indications of a little bit of that in those 22 verses. But I think it was bigger than that. I think this intimate conversation that you and I are so lucky that we are the recipients to know about the conversation between those two people, I think the greater issue is that she began to explain to her son that the way God put women together was for the purpose that we could learn what he's like by looking at her. And so she begins to break out all of these ideas about what woman is. Now here's why I think it's really kind of cool. Because right here in the 22 verses, she does something that us English-speaking people would never, ever know unless we studied it. She takes those 22 verses about womanhood, and she writes it in what is called an alphabetical acrostic poem. And what that means is if you've ever written something and the first line, let's say we do one in English, starts with A and the second line starts with B and C and so on. So I thought I'd do one for you so you know what I'm talking about. Let's say that you and I are going to build an alphabetical acrostic definition of a middle school boy, okay? So we're going to do that. So we're going to take the letter A. Let's go ahead and do that. 
Let's pick A and we'll say active, okay? Middle school boys, man, they are going, okay? Okay, now we gotta go with B. Let's throw this one out there. Body odor, am I right? Am I breaching truth, okay? Middle school boys are awful. C, they are confused. They don't know what's going on, okay? That is an alphabetical acrostic poem. Now watch this. In order for this lady to say, now I'm not just kind of you know, rambling here. I am intentionally telling you about how God created a woman so that you could see his character. He took the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet and every line in those 22 verses starts with the first letter and the second letter and the third letter. It is a beautiful example of how the Bible is written. So the bottom line, is that you and I can pick up our Bible and we can go to Proverbs 31 and we can read about a private, intimate conversation of great importance that a lady shared with her son about how God created womanhood. And the purpose of it is so that we can see him in the way they live. So it's a great opportunity to take that portion of the Bible and just read through it and begin to see how God put women together so that we would know him better. Now, we don't have the time. It's not the place for us to to go all through those 22 verses. And so I just picked a couple that I want you to hear about, just kind of an idea so that you'll see what I'm going with. And I want to show you a little bit of that. One of the character traits of womanhood that God put together so that, don't, don't forget the, the premise of all of this, so that we would know him better. One of those traits is a priority devotion to the family. That when God put womanhood together, he said, I want her to have a priority devotion to the family and to the home. Now, don't put stuff in there that's not there. Don't look at that and say, well, does that mean that men have no responsibility in the home? That doesn't mean that at all. It never says anything about that. The Bible talks often about the significant role and responsibility of men in the home. That's not what that's saying. Nor does it say that some people look at that and say, what does that mean women cannot work outside the home? Okay, they gotta stay at home and take care of That's not what that means at all. In fact, there are other places in the 31st proverb that talk about this lady in the sense she was an incredible businesswoman, unbelievable businesswoman. That's not what that's saying. What it's saying is that when God created womanhood, remember the thesis, Everything he creates has the purpose to reveal his character. So when he created womanhood, he put within her the leaning, the tendency, the propensity to lean first and foremost to her family. That her mind and her priorities cause her to take the family, and it will trump anything. The family is at the top. 
Look at how he describes it in the 11th and 12th verse. He said, her husband has full confidence in her and lacks nothing of value. She brings him good, not harm, all the days of her life, committed to the husband and to the family. Look at verse 27. She watches over the affairs of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. You know what that means? Taking care of the home is one of the hardest jobs there is. She leans toward that. She has a leaning always about the family. Now, my, my wife and I have been together so long, we, we see this all the time. We've learned it. It's second nature to us about how we are wired differently as a man and a woman about that. So when I wake up, the very first thing that enters my mind every day is productivity. That's the first thing I think about when I become conscious in the morning is productivity because God wired men that way. And so I immediately think, you know, what work am I gonna do today? Do I gotta get a sermon done today? Do I have to do that? Or am I have meetings today? Or what am I, what's going on that I have to get done? Even if it's a play day, even if it's a day off of mine, and I'm gonna meet my buddies to play golf, I wake up and immediately think productivity. Okay, how am I gonna hit that drive on number 14 to make sure it doesn't go in the water on the left-hand side? It's the very first thing I think of when I wake up, not Susan. When Susan wakes up, her first thought is what are her kids doing that day? Wondering if one of the grandkids feels better from the cold they had. Wondering what her husband will have for dinner that night. Wondering how her mom slept the night before. Wondering how her sister or her brother or nephew or niece are doing. She constantly has that leaning. I've joked with her. It must be horrible to be you. You got all these people in your head just constantly bouncing around. I just wake up and wonder, can I get another day out of these socks? That's all I got going, okay? Now, why is that so important? Why did God wire women that way? Why did he wire them that way? Because he wanted us to see him. God loves his church family with an unequaled passion. We talk about that at Eastside all the time, that we are brothers and sisters here. This is our family. When you talk to people who start coming to Eastside and they've been here for three or four weeks or three or four months and you go to them and say, man, what is it about Eastside? Why do you like Eastside? You know what they talk about? They don't talk about lights. They don't talk about sermons. They don't talk about music. They talk about, man, this has become my home. This is my family. And as family members, we have the same father who cares immensely for every one of us. And every time we see the leaning of womanhood toward family, we are reminded of this incredible nature of God's character. And so ladies, please hear me. Don't let a humanistic, anti-God culture steal that beautiful quality from you. Hold on to that and don't let them lie to you and say that's not important. It's incredibly important. 
Let me show you another aspect that comes up in the text, and that is that when God created womanhood, he put within her a tenderness toward those who hurt. And that's different from most men who are pigs, okay? We don't have that leaning. I remember one time I was watching a basketball game and our youngest son was playing and he was coming down the court and I don't know, he's seven, eight, nine years old and he's flying down, he's going on a fast break and he's about to score and the kid defending him kind of tackles him and knocks him down, total foul. And our son is laying there and he's writhing in death pain, you know. And it's one of them deals where the whole gym is quiet, you know. Is he gonna live? Is he gonna breathe his last? And I was so proud of my wife because she didn't run out there and beat that kid up like my mom did years ago. But I looked at her and it was everything. She, she wanted to call everybody together for a prayer meeting and she wanted to cuddle. So I walk out on the court and I pick him up and I carry him to the free throw line and I put him on the free throw line and pat him on the bottom and say, come on man, we need these two points. And they booed me off the court. <laughs> now, why'd that happen? Why was that different? Because God wired her different than me. Look at verse 20 in Proverbs 31. She opens her arms to the poor and extends her hands to the needy. So when God said, let's create womanhood, Let's give her the leaning, the propensity to see people when they hurt. Now, why did he do that? Because when your heart breaks, God's heart is the first to break with you. You can go through the entire 31st proverb and you just see it happening over and over and over and over. Her wisdom, her work ethic, her spiritual influence, all of these things that God put together in the ingredients of a beautiful thing called womanhood so that we would be able to know him better. Now, I want us to, um, I want us to leave here uh, in a minute the same way that the proverb ends. And I want to tell you something about the way that it ends. In, in that day, and I imagine in some circles even today this exists, when royalty would enter a room, Everybody stood up in silence and in awe because it was your way of saying that someone far greater than yourself is here. And so everybody knew that. When royalty comes in, man, you just stood up and in total silence revered the presence of royalty. I, I wonder if that's why 
toward the very end of the 31st proverb, we have this verse. Check it out. Her children arise and call her blessed, and her husband also, and he praises her. So I thought of this idea. I don't know if this will work, but we're going to try it. If you are a male, I'm going to ask you in a minute to rise to your feet in silence and reverence of the royalty in this room. May we rise. Gentlemen, we are in the presence of royalty. Father, we thank you, those of us who stand to our feet at this moment, for your beautiful creation of women. And it's far beyond what they look like. It's who they are. Because when we see them the way you created them, we get to see you. Amen.